Well, hello. In this um, podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about my experience volunteering with the Nakavango Conservation Program in Zimbabwe. And uh, the reason I want to share it with you is it really stopped me in my tracks <laughs> and challenged some preconceptions that I know I had for sure. And I believe uh, many other people do when it comes to some aspects of conservation. So just to let you uh, have a bit of background, the Nakavango Conservation Programme is located uh, near Victoria Falls, the town of Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. And it's um, located in the Stanley Livingston Private Game Reserve. So there's an upmarket hotel, private game reserve there. And um, part of the, one of the activities that goes on there is the Nakavango Conservation Programme. And um, the guy who runs it, uh, Ian, um, he's been involved in conservation for quite a long time. I'm not sure how old he is, but he's probably uh, late 50s, uh, mid to late 50s. <laughs> I hopefully don't get that wrong in the wrong direction. And at the time I was there, which was in um, February uh, 2020, uh, there were a couple of other people there who were running the program and involved in the guiding. And unfortunately, because of COVID, uh, they lost their jobs um, this year in 2021 which is a real shame because to me, they really made the program. However, getting back to the, um, the purpose of this. So what they do at Nakavango is they try out different conservation methods. Some of those are to do, in fact, most of what we were involved with was to do with um, plants. So how to get rid of certain alien plants, which you've got to introduce one way or another, and then get spread around. And what they do, they um, sort of take over the uh, natural plants that you would expect to see in that area which means that the local animals can't feed on so much I mean this stuff really does no good at all so um, there were a couple of um, plants that we did remove one, one is quite small and um, just kind of pulls out it's like a weed and it's it's it actually um, the seeds get carried uh, by uh, or they, they actually get eaten by baboons and then they get dropped by baboons um, basically uh, using the bathroom. So if you go to the trees uh, or the bottom of the trees where the baboons tend to hang out, you'll find a lot of uh, these plants growing there. So we would just pull them out. I mean, they're very loosely rooted. So they came out pretty easily. Uh, you just had to be a little bit careful when you're in um, a, a large area of this stuff because it does grow quite fast. And um, somebody did find a baby puff adder. <laughs> which uh, so you know the, the, that was really rare but um, you do just make sure you're making noise and you're careful when you're in the deeper stuff just to make sure there's nothing in there that you uh, would rather not meet and what I found most interesting though was with the um, the animal conservation so um, on the first full day I think it was we had a talk um at the um, the camp, all the volunteers. So they, they do two week blocks, and I did two two week blocks. So uh, this was the first time um, I had this talk, and Ian was talking about elephant conservation. Now elephants are what they call a keystone species. So they have their behaviour has a big impact on both the environment and other species around them. So making sure that the number of elephants in any given area is the right kind of number for that area is quite important. And we all know that elephants are endangered and, and we, you know, there's a lot about saving elephants, protecting elephants and their victims, particularly of the ivory trade, but um, environmental 
issues have also reduced their numbers. So there, there is a lot of pressure on the population. But what we miss out on is in some local areas, there's actually an overpopulation of elephants. And because they are so big and they can create a lot of damage, elephants obviously are large animals, they can um, uh, get stuck into quite large trees, they'll debark them, they'll pull the leaves off, but then they can kill them. And if you take out some of the bigger trees, because if you think of it in a forest environment, the bigger trees create some shade, and that means that it limits the number of trees that need a lot of light to grow, but some of the smaller trees can then grow and take advantage of that space, and then certain animals will tell, tend to feed on those trees and bushes, and then sort of hence down the chain. Now, I'm not an expert by, uh, you know, remotely in this area, but I hope we get the general idea, which is what I'm trying to put across. So if you get elephants and they start to destroy the larger trees, which is what happens sometimes when you get an overpopulation, it means the larger trees disappear and then the smaller ones start to grow too much and you get an imbalance of the, um, um, the flora in a particular area and that impacts the fauna, the animals, and what they can find to feed on. So one of the aspects of managing these populations is to manage an overpopulation of elephants. So the obvious thing to do and what has been done in the past is to just move some of the elephants somewhere else where there's an underpopulation of elephants because it kind of makes sense. You'd think that would be the obvious thing to do. But the thing is we're slowly understanding more and more about elephants which might sound strange as well because obviously we've been living with them for an awful long time and we have a tendency to think we know all there is to know about certain species, or at least in kind of mainstream media. Whereas the fact is, there are an awful lot of animals, probably majority, we really don't understand a lot about what they do and their social makeup and um, how they live. Um, we can observe some of it, but there are there are levels of subtlety in there that we, we don't understand. So what happens with animals, uh, sorry, with elephants, is that they tend to split into two groups. So you tend to have the um, adult males, which for a long time were thought to just roam pretty much on their own. Although in 20, it was actually either 2020 or 2021, um, some, a study in Namibia saw that in fact, some males at least do group together in what they call bachelor herds. Now other animals do this. So impala, for example, you'll find bachelor herds of impala. But I, as far as I'm aware, this was the first time it had been seen in elephants. So we're still learning. However, the main groups of elephants are matriarchal. So the, it's generally the older female will lead the, um, the group or the herd. And that's composed of all the females and then the um, sub-adult, the prepubescent male elephants live in that family group. And... The function of the matriarch, because the matriarch is an older elephant, she's been around a long time through many different types of weather, so where there's lots of food, where there's drought, all, all the different things you can imagine. So she builds up this knowledge of where the group can find food and water regardless of the um, conditions. So she knows, obviously when it's plentiful, it's not a big deal, but when things begin to get scarce, she can lead the herd uh, somewhere where they can get food and water and basically survive. So that's her role in the group. And that's why it's an older female, because she's got these uh, years and this huge variety of different seasons uh, that she can draw on that knowledge. The problem is when you 
take a group of elephants out of an area to relocate them, you drop that group, including the matriarch, into an area that she doesn't know at all. And so she can no longer perform that function. And that causes, <clears throat> excuse me, all sorts of strife for the, uh, the group. And what's been observed, and this is something that Ian was talking about in this um, talk. Oh, excuse me, I'm going to have to have a drink. <laughs> okay, excuse me. Is that because the matriarch can't perform her functions, she's likely to go mad. And I have seen this. They saw a, a, a large female elephant go mad because she could not do what she was programmed to do. She could not care for the herd. She could not care for her family. And she didn't have the means to adapt to the new situation. So the suggestion, this is where it can be, I would say this is probably very controversial, even knowing the explanation. Um, Ian's suggestion was that the kindest thing you can do, because elephants also have strong social bonds, they have been seen to have strong family bonds. And in fact, I heard a great story of a mother that had lost a baby in um, uh, Botswana near the Chobe River, and uh, I'll perhaps relate that in another story. But the kindest thing you can do, in, in Ian's opinion, based on decades of being involved in conservation work, is where you have an overpopulation of elephants is to kill a family. Basically, you just shoot them. And that sounds pretty drastic. But the thing is, it does save them an awful lot of long-term pain because the chances are they're not going to survive and do very well where you relocate them because they're just not equipped to handle that new environment. And they're going to then struggle and they're not mentally equipped as well to handle the change. So I share this story because it made me really stop and think about my views on conservation and what the right thing to do was. And I also had the opportunity to talk to Ian several times. I mean, I was there for four weeks. And um, I mean, this is a guy who really, really cares passionately about what he's doing and about looking after animals and um, creating an environment where they can flourish. So what he was said was not said lightly and it's uh, something that I, I obviously wanted to share um, as something for other people to maybe think about. It's, it's also a reason why I'm really keen on volunteering and doing volunteering projects. Now um, they're a bit of a lottery to be honest and I think the main lottery is really the people you end up with not so much the organizers although uh, I did go with one which wasn't that well organized. Um, but my, my overall experience of doing them, and this is where, um, in fact, Justine, who was running the, um, the admin side at Nakavango until she lost her job because of the impact of COVID, uh, she was really on the ball and um, very, very helpful with things like uh, visas and the kind of visa you need for volunteering. Um, I can't remember if I asked her about jabs, but frankly, in fact, that did come with the material actually uh, before I volunteered the, when I was interested in doing it, but I tend to do my own research anyway. And also I was going to several countries, so I, I, I did my own uh, research. But the thing about volunteering is you get that kind of hands-on. You get to talk to people who are doing this sort, of, this sort of work every day, and they've been doing it for decades. You get the value of meeting those people. And you're also hands-on doing it, so you're contributing in that sense. So we did a lot of uh, getting rid of these plants that um, were not wanted, um, and cleared large areas. In fact, after, well, certainly in the period I was there, we, we cleared uh, quite quite large areas of these things, which was um, um, 
you know, really appreciated by the people there. Now, point about that, they've looked at various ways of getting rid of these plants. So obviously you could uh, use um, chemicals to get rid of them and, and that sort of thing. But the problem is all of that, of course, has an effect on not only the thing you're trying to remove, but other things around it. So manually removing these plants seem to be the, the best approach. And it is pretty straightforward. Once you know what you're looking for, it really is just pull these things out and you can get through a large area very quickly. But this is one of the things that uh, was being experimented with at the, the Nakamango project. And then what happens is there's basically a, a group um, across uh, certainly Central Africa. I think I'm correct in saying it's Zimbabwe, Zambia, Tanzania, I think South Africa as well, um, possibly Namibia, uh, Botswana. I think they all kind of, so again, I'm now relating a, a bit of a memory, but um, uh, they kind of share information and what they do, they, they will experiment something in a small area like the Nakavango project and then repeat things that are, have been demonstrated to have worked in some of these larger parts, which obviously require much greater effort. But that way they know that they're putting effort in that is um, it's going to have, a, have the result they want, have the desired result. So this is where as a volunteer, you're, you're getting out there, you're getting to learn a lot, you're um, contributing very much to supporting these local areas and um, in, a, in the longer term you're, you're actually contributing to the, the wider efforts to maintain environments for um, all of these wildlife species, many of which are endangered and some are on the verge of extinction, which is, is obviously um, a tragic loss. So that's, that was the first thing about volunteering. So if, if you want to know more about volunteering, there are certainly plenty of organisations that you can um, connect with. I'm very happy to um, share what I know and I can tell you who I went with. And um, I do really recommend it. And as I said on another um, uh, podcast, and I've also said it in blogs, the other thing I love as a photographer um, is that, because I, I, I mean, part of it for me, with the photography is actually learning about the animals because I find that I get more from the photography and I feel my pictures are better if I understand a bit more about the elephants. That's why I'm really interested in learning. Well, I'll do things like volunteering and to, to get projects rather than just sort of scoot out and, and photograph stuff because uh, I'll do my own research anyway, but there's nothing, I don't think there's anything to beat talking to people who are uh, very actively involved in um, the work itself because they've, they've got a, a, a different perspective to what you're likely to find elsewhere. So the benefit of the pictures for me is that, first of all, I've got a bit more of an understanding of what I'm actually photographing. And if you've listened to any of my photography courses or, or some of the blogs, I'll talk about being a visual storyteller rather than a photographer, because I think that change in um, mindset changes your results quite significantly, because you're now much more aware of what's in the frame and you know what's your subject. How is everything else in the frame telling the story of that subject or somehow contributing to the overall image. So look, it, it doesn't have to, that might sound like a really heavy. In fact, it's not, if anyone who knows me knows I'm not, <laughs> I tend to do things pretty fast. So it's not a massive in-depth thing, but it's just a change in approach and it changes the way you look at something. So once you begin to understand the animals more, you perhaps are more aware of maybe the kind of story, what it is you want to say about them, in, um, in a photograph, and I think that's um, a, a kind of healthy approach. So that's one of the benefits of volunteering. You, you often find that 
you're kind of on your own with the animals. You know, you'll be there in your group, and uh, there's um, a guy in Dean who was the the main um, guide who, who, while I was there, who's married to Justine. Unfortunately, both he and Justine lost their jobs, and Dean was um, just brilliant. I, I learned such a lot, and I would have happily stayed for many months more just to learn more because he's one of these people who just really knows their um, what they're doing. He can read spore. He can read what's in the land. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, go with him uh, a few times where we did some tracking on foot. We tracked um, elephant and rhino. And um, I, I, I just was, I'm, I'm just in awe of people who can really uh, just look at the ground and tell you exactly what's going on. And um, I, 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 in, in the very modest way that I, I could, I learned what I could from him. So, you know, that's another, another side to, um, to volunteering. Now, if, you're, if you are interested in this idea, but maybe you're not in the, the first bloom of youth anymore, and that might be a bit of a distant memory for you, I won't worry about it too much. As long as you're reasonably mobile, I mean, you probably wouldn't contemplate going to one of these places without being reasonably mobile. And I'm not talking about sort of mega fit, but, you know, you, know, you can walk a, uh, for an hour or two and that sort of thing and not, uh, you know, absolutely need to rest all the time, that sort of thing then it doesn't really matter. And even if you're not as active, if, if you're an older person, and um, um, I, I'm certainly heading there, uh, there, there is a variety of different tasks. So some involve quite manual work. Um, so I definitely uh, made friends with a pickaxe and um, shovels from time to time and other things just to clear vegetation. But also there's lighter work you can do. And um, so you, you can definitely be there and participate. There's a lot of younger people there, which is lovely anyway, because there's a lot of you know the energy is great and people are there to have fun and enjoy what they're doing and so there's a um, a nice vibe at least in um as I, say, I had one kind of bad trip but the uh, the others to varying degrees are pretty good um and definitely the nakavanga one stands out for me that was an amazing trip um so there you go that's um again a taste of perhaps what you can do in volunteering but also um, i did want to share a little bit of the story of the nakavango conservation program because once you become aware of these kind of um, opportunities. I, I think if you can do them, if you have the opportunity to do them, I would absolutely recommend it because, um, as I say, I think you'll learn a huge amount anyway about what's going on in the world, in the in the natural world. You have an opportunity to contribute. And if you are into photography and um, just want to have a, a, a different way of photographing things, um, there it is. So I'm going to stop now. It's... Um, been talking for a little while i hope uh, you found it interesting i hope i haven't been rambling too much and uh, as i say if you would like to know more if i can answer any questions you're very welcome to get in touch uh, you can um, contact me at um, graham at creativephotographyacademy.com uh, that is the sort of training arm of, of what i run and i also have fine art prints some of which are taken at uh, nakavango under um, the, the graham elliott photography brand so um, you'll be able to find out there but um, yeah but if you have any questions please drop me a line and um, enjoy the rest of your day whatever you're doing and I hope to speak to you again soon bye for now just before I go I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined uh, with the podcast Buzzsprout which is the um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. 
The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind the scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. Thank you.